every war has its defeats and victories. Every battle has casualties and triumphs and heroic moments. Think of a war as large scale as World War II, and the Allies eventually won victory, but there were devastating defeats and losses even within the midst of that. And Joshua, the book of Joshua, has given us a picture of the the Christian war, the Christian fight, the good fight of the Christian life. And as we consider this, we see that there are both defeats and victories in Joshua. We've seen so far God led them across the Jordan. We've seen that God helped them to defeat Jericho. But then they sinned and they were defeated at Ai, or I as it's actually properly pronounced, but I may say both. We've seen victory and then defeat. And then in this chapter, we see a victory again against I. This is a picture of the fight of the Christian life. But we see here in this passage that God intends For us as his people, contrite, broken, confessing our sins, forsaking them by his grace to win victory, to triumph over evil. And so we see here an encouragement to us as we fight the good fight to win the battle and to take victory by God's power. I want to split this chapter up into three sections The first is verses 1 and 2, where we see God's encouraging direction. The second is verses 3 to 22, where we see Israel's courageous obedience. And then we'll see Ai's total destruction in verses 22 to 29. So first of all, look with me at God's encouraging direction here in verses 1 to 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. In the last chapter, we had seen the people defeated. At Ai, and God revealed it was because of their sin that He had not gone with them by His power, and they were defeated by the people there. But now He encourages them. Now that His anger, His wrath is turned away because they confessed their sin and they forsook it, they destroyed it. Now He gives encouragement to Joshua and comfort and promises and some direction as well. So we see here, first of all, an encouragement. To Joshua, he says, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise. Go up to Ai. God comforts him by telling him not to fear or be dismayed. As he had directed Joshua, even in the very beginning of this book, in chapter 1, verse 9, he said, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. But here Joshua needed a fresh reminder, fresh comfort from God, fresh assurance that he was to go up and fight against Ai. 
God gives him grace and assurance after they had grieved God and lost power in battle. And Joshua waited till he received this encouragement from God to go up. This is an important principle even for our spiritual life. After we've sinned and grieved God, he does not normally renew his comforts, assurances, and promises to us until we are brought to a place of contrition and repentance. Matthew Henry says it this way, when we have faithfully put away sin, that accursed thing which separates between us and God, then and not till then, we may expect to hear from God to our comfort. This is why it is important to keep short accounts with God, that we would continually confess our sins, even as they arise in our thoughts, in our hearts, in our desires, and we forsake them and we live by the grace of God. Psalm 51 gives us the model that we return to the Lord to seek his mercy. And then we say, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And then sinners will come trembling to you. The Israelites did the opposite of this back in Numbers chapter 14, verses 39 to 45. After they had sinned against God, they refused to go into the land. God's anger burned against them. But then they presumed to go back up into battle against the Amalekites. And Moses warned them, don't go up because God is not with you. We need to first come to repentance and wait upon the encouragements and comforts of the Lord if we want to be effective in the Christian life. It's like a friendship or a marriage. You can't continue on as if things are normal if there's some breach between you, right? You need to reconcile. You need to repent and confess before you can go working hand in hand with a, a close friend or a spouse. This also shows us when we are afraid, when fears arise because of the things that God has commanded us to do. Well, what are we to do? We're to go back to the Lord and hear his words of encouragement. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. But arise. We need to know when fears rise up that we have a sovereign, good, all-powerful, omniscient God who tells us not to be afraid. In the Gospels, there is that story when the disciples were afraid of the wind and the waves. There was a great storm that came. Jesus was sleeping in the boat. Jesus rebuked them for their small faith. Then he showed them a token of his sovereign power that by one word, he could calm the wind and the waves. We likewise, when we fear, we're to put, the, put our trust in God. Psalm 56, 3 says this, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. And fears and anxieties vanish as we cast them on the Lord. And we remember his promises and his presence. For this very promise, do not be afraid, is found all over the Bible. And I'm not sure if it's exactly accurate or not, but Richard Wormbrand, who was a pastor in Romania, and he was imprisoned for something like 14 years, tortured for his faith. He said that 
This is found 365 times in the Bible, once for every day. So for whatever fears we have in our days, we can go back to the Lord. We can trust in him. We can remember his promise. Do not be afraid. We see here also a specific promise of God. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. There in verse 1. God gives assurance that he would, in fact, give Ai into the hand of Joshua. Just as he promised about all of Canaan in the beginning of this book, and about Jericho specifically in chapter 6, verse 2, God tells him that Ai also is given to him. I have given. We've seen this before, but it's worthwhile to remember that God's promises are a done deal. When he says he has given something, it is sure. When he says he gives Ai into the hands of the Israelites, it will happen. I have given. This is the word of the sovereign God who holds all things in his hands, who governs all things. And so he can say, I have given and it is done. God makes promises to us. And like Sarah in Hebrews 11.11, where it says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. We are to consider God faithful as he promises and trust that promise and arise and take what he has promised. This is very applicable even in our fight with sin and our mission as the church. God gives us promises of sin's defeat. Romans 6.14 says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Do you know that? It will have no dominion over you. And we have to act that promise. We have to believe in that promise. And so present our members to God as instruments of righteousness. God gives us promises of the church's triumph. Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We're to be engaged in building the church and advancing the gospel. And this is an offensive metaphor here. It's not merely defensive that we're sitting in our churches and Satan's trying to attack us, but we're actually going forward. We're storming the gates of hell. And God says they will not prevail against us. Do we believe that? Do we take that word and trust in it? We are to trust and go forward in spiritual warfare, in prayer and evangelism, knowing God will do what he promised. I have given, he says. This also encourages us as we think about just the the wider mission of the church and the salvation of people from all nations. There's many promises in the scriptures. One is Malachi 1.11. It says, from the, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. 
God says in Revelation, there will be a countless multitude from every tribe and language and nation worshiping the Lamb forever. Do we believe that? We're to take that promise. Again, trust it. Go forward. Enacting what God has called us to do. Trusting in His sovereign power to accomplish it. And in His faithfulness to fulfill His word. We need to take these promises to the bank. In other words, withdrawing what God has already deposited. He's the sovereign God. He has declared that these things will be accomplished. We're merely to take him at his word and fulfill these things. God also gives Joshua direction here. He says in verse 2, And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So he gives them a unique strategy for this particular fight. And he also gives them directions similar to that which he gave with regard to Jericho. Devote all this to destruction, but you're to take the plunder and you're to set an ambush. This is how you're going to defeat the people. God's directions may vary for different circumstances, but they're always right. God always knows how we are to triumph. And so again, we're to trust him, trust his ways, trust his methods, trust his strategies and directions, and know that he will bring about the victory. Notice something else here. God blesses the people with spoil and livestock. He gives them plunder from Ai, which is something he hadn't done in Jericho. And of course, Achan's sin was... He coveted that which God had not given. He took some of the plunder for himself and so sinned against God and brought God's wrath against the whole nation. But now God says you can take some of the plunder. Isn't it interesting if Achan would have just trusted in the Lord and his providence and been thankful for what he had at the time, he would have received some of the plunder later. Sometimes we forfeit or delay God's blessings by trying to take them before God's ordained time. But rather, we should trust in the Lord and his providence and be thankful for what we have, knowing God is a gracious and generous God. He will often give us the things that we desire and even more that we desire. We should not covet them and take them by sinning when he has not given them to us, but rather know that he is generous and trust in him. So we see God's encouraging direction toward Joshua and Israel here. And so we also should be encouraged as we look to the direction of God in our fight. We also see in this passage, Israel's courageous obedience in verses 3 to 22. Joshua now taking the encouragement, promise, and direction of God, arrays the people for battle before Ai. We see Israel courageously obeying God and God giving them the victory. Here we see a number of characteristics that really we also ought to have in the fight of the Christian life. And I won't go through every detail here, 
There's a lot of detail to this passage, but rather just selecting out certain attributes that we ought to aim for. First is this, might and valor. Look at verse 3. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And we see he laid the ambush behind the city using these 30,000 mighty men. And it it appears in verse 12 that there was also an additional group of 5,000 men set in ambush. Aaron Rock, a pastor in Ontario, recently uh, gave a podcast talking about the need for valiant men. Valiant men. We see that in this passage. There were fighting men. All the men of Israel, 20 years of age and older, were called into battle. They were to fight. So we also, all as Christians, we are called to a good fight. But we also see distinguished here mighty men of valor. We see this throughout the Old Testament, that there were strong and courageous men. You think of David and his military. He had mighty men, three chief mighty men who did amazing feats like wielding a spear, this one guy by himself, defeating 800 men at one time, men who stood alone and brought about great victories. There were 30 other mighty men underneath them. The strongest, most mighty and valiant men were chosen out for a special operation. You think of even in our world of military. It takes uh, a mighty man, a fighting man, to go into the infantry. But how much more a Navy SEAL? Do you have to be a valiant man to go into that kind of operation? This is something that our current culture does not really like to think about. Valiant men. Courageous men. In fact, we won't even define the difference between men and women, as we saw this week, even the Anglican Church is officially exploring the complexities of gender in order to provide a definition of womanhood. Our culture is confused about gender, including manhood, and especially this idea of strength, courage, bravery, valor among men has been practically erased. We still give lip service to our veterans on Remembrance Day. We watch movies and play video games with valiant characters, but practically men are being dulled down. We don't aim to be valiant. We're content with being lazy and impotent. On the flip side, there's the opposite problem, that men are harsh and aggressive in their use of strength, and they use their strength selfishly and not lovingly. But the Bible honors men who are righteously valiant and strong. Men like David and Jonathan, men like Paul and Barnabas, giving their lives for the gospel. Men like Epaphroditus, who risked his life in the service of Christ. And Christian history is full of examples of valiant men, valiant for truth, 
valiant for the commission of Christ. Men like Athanasius, of whom it was said, Athanasius against the world, because he would not stop preaching the doctrine of the Trinity, even when he was exiled five times. It was not the popular belief of his day, but he kept proclaiming it. Men like St. Patrick, who was enslaved in Ireland and then later returned to Ireland to preach the gospel to those people, and he transformed a nation. Men like Martin Luther, who stood boldly before the Pope and would not recant the biblical faith. A man like the missionary we support, who's going to a closed country, sharing the gospel. These are the kinds of valiant men that we need. Men who go courageously for the faith. Men who are valiant for truth and righteousness. Courageous and bold, willing and able to stand before opposition and not grow weary. Men who will speak the truth no matter the cost. We need mighty men of valor for the mission of Christ today. And may I say in the church there is also room for valiant women. You know the passage Proverbs 31 It describes the excellent wife, it might say in our translations. But that term there, excellent wife, is actually similar to the words here. It's a wife of Hayil, a wife of valor. My Old Testament prof called her the G.I. Jane. You know, we need courageous women as well. 1 Peter 3 describes this kind of woman, submissive and of a quiet and gentle spirit, which is very precious in the Lord's eyes, but also fearless, he says. You are her children, that is Sarah, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Women are called to be active participants in the work of Christ as well, especially in this New Testament era. There's an emphasis on all people men and women partaking in this great commission together. Paul had many female co-workers in the gospel, Priscilla, Phoebe, Junia, Euodia, and Syntyche, Lydia, and so on. But especially, I want to encourage, especially young men this morning, be a valiant man for Jesus Christ. Would you be sober-minded And serious about Jesus Christ. And get disciplined for him. Strong in the faith. Put down the games, the video games, the fantasies. And start actually being a valiant man in real life. For the cause of Christ. This is what we're called to. As those who would follow Jesus in his kingdom. As our Lord Jesus himself is the pinnacle of a valiant man. He never stopped preaching the truth despite all the opposition, all the suffering, all the questions that came at him. He never stopped pursuing his mission to go to the cross even with all of the suffering, the very cup of the wrath of God that was before him. Courageously, he went up to Calvary And so we also are to be valiant and strong men for him. We see also in this passage some other characteristics 
strategy, wisdom, and cooperation. Really, this is all through verses 4 to 23. See, God gave them this strategy of an ambush, and then Joshua fleshed that out. He put multiple groups behind the city between Bethel and Ai, and this made sense based on the landscape. Uh, There's research done now. A, A man named Bryant Wood has found the site of the biblical Ai, and there's a, a deep valley in between Ai and Bethel where this, uh, these soldiers would have camped. And so it made sense. It was a wise move. It was a good strategy to get behind this city and go up in ambush. We see Joshua arraigned an army before them, and then they fell back as the people of Ai came at them. And then the smoke went up in the city, and both groups charged in on the people of Ai. And so they were all destroyed by this strategy and wisdom and also great cooperation shown by the people of Israel. In verse 22, it says, the others came from the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side, some on that side, and Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. I wonder, do we think of strategy and wisdom and cooperation enough in our fight with sin and in pushing the kingdom forward. See, God gives strategies against sin. And we're to know Satan's devices. And we're to know how sin operates and learn from past failures and victories. And so apply ourselves to the directions God has given to us. Scripture speaks of various remedies against particular sins. Anxieties are to be cast on him in prayer with thanksgiving, Philippians 4, 6. Sexual immorality and youthful lusts are to be completely fled from, 1 Corinthians 6, 18, 2 Timothy 2, 22. And Jesus said certain things could not be dealt with except through prayer, Mark 9, 29. So do we use God's strategies and do we arraign all of our forces, take all of the fighting men? the mighty men of valor, do we use all the means of grace, prayer and the word, church fellowship, exhorting one another, communion, singing, thankfulness, all of course empowered by the Holy Spirit himself? Do we get ahead of the enemy? Do we ambush him? Do we pray even ahead of time, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil? Do we hide the word in our hearts so that when the time comes, We may not sin against God, as Psalm 119.11 says. We have to really set an ambush to attack our sins and use wisdom and strategy all according to God's direction. And we need cooperation. In terms of the mission of Christ, I think about William Carey, the missionary to India. Sometimes we imagine these Men just hopped on a boat and went to a country and started preaching, and that was it, and God did the work. Well, normally that is not the case. These missions take much planning. William Carey himself thought long and hard about how to reach nations for the gospel. He wrote an 87-page book proposing his understanding of missions and what task was left 
and how him and several other men could form a society to that end. He got all the guys he knew together to form this Baptist missionary society. And he had pages and pages of statistics that he had gathered on all these nations and their population and the religions among them. And so this requires strategy and wisdom and much cooperation. I think in our church, we're still in the baby stages of what we will be doing for the Great Commission. And we need everyone's gifting employed in the building up of the church and in cooperating for the sake of this Great Commission. Thinking lately about Heart Cry Missionary Society and there's opportunities ahead of us and they're exciting as the previous pastor here, Ben Lane, is part of Heart Cry. He's coordinating North America. He's thinking about ways he could support our association and church plant and push more missionaries in places in Canada where there are not faithful churches. I think we need to really pray about these things. Put them before the Lord. Ask him to give us wisdom and help us cooperate in all the ways that we can, even with bigger operations, with more power, so that we can push forward the advancement of the gospel. We need wisdom, strategy, and cooperation. We also need in our fight faith and obedience. We see this in verses 5 to 8. Joshua makes it clear that God would give the city into their hand. Verse 7. And he believed that. He said, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. Joshua did not doubt the promise of God. And the people all obeyed the word of God. Verse 8. It says, and as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. Like Joshua's army, we are to trust in what God has said again and obey his word, his commandment. We need to know that apart from God's power, we can do absolutely nothing. And so this is the life of faith and conforming ourselves to the very word of God, not tampering with it, not seeking our own way, but following God's direction and trusting in him is how we win victory. Fourth here, I want to point out, we see diligence and perseverance in the fight here. Joshua especially shows great diligence and perseverance. He sent the men out by night, verse 3 says. He arose early in the morning, verse 10 says. He did not give sleep to his eyelids until the preparations were made. And he didn't hesitate to rise early to start the battle. See, we also must sacrifice relaxation and rest sometimes to be diligent and put ourselves into this mission that Christ has given to us. We see also Joshua stretched out his javelin as the Lord commanded him and did not draw it back till everyone was devoted to destruction. That's in verse 18 and 26. So Joshua shows great perseverance. He was diligent in the work of God, and he endured to the very end, not drawing his javelin back. Just like our Lord Jesus Christ says in John 4, 24 to 26, 
My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. See, just as Jesus applied himself to the work the Father had given, we are to apply ourselves to that work to gather in this harvest that is just ripe, that is waiting for us, not to be fruitless, but rather fruitful in every good work. Now you might say, isn't it God who does all the work, really? We've talked about his sovereign power. Won't he preserve us to the end, even despite our sins and failings and maybe even lack of diligence? It's all his work in the end. But this is not how biblical faith works. God calls his people to be diligent and to make every effort and to persevere even to the end. Second Peter 1, 5 to 8 speaks of making every effort to supplement our faith with various qualities so that we would not be ineffective or unfruitful. Jesus said it is the one who endures to the end who will be saved. Paul himself said that he worked harder than any of the other apostles. Yet, it was not himself, but Jesus Christ working within him. That is the balance of a biblical faith. A.W. Pink puts it well. He says, the sluggard looks for prosperity without diligence. The self-sufficient or practical atheist from diligence alone but the balanced Christian from both the blessing of God and the exercise of diligence. That wise combination keeps him both active and humble, energetic, yet dependent on God. That's the biblical balance, to depend completely upon God, to recognize our weakness, and that his power is perfected in weakness as we simply look to him and we trust him and we obey him, but also by his strength to be diligent, to persevere, to be active, to be energetic. As Ryle says, we need to make a diligent use of all the means of grace for our sanctification. And if we're going to persevere in the work of the church and the mission of the church, likewise, we need diligence and perseverance. We are going to have to make sacrifices in regards to relaxation and entertainment and sleeping in too long. And we are to make diligent efforts until the work is done. Jesus says we're to put our hand to the plow and not look back. Now following all this and how Israel courageously obeyed God, we see God gives them Ai into their hands and they win a complete victory over this people. Ai's total defeat we see in verses 22 to 29. See, first of all, like Jericho, they were devoted to complete destruction that every last one of them was struck down by the edge of the sword. 12,000 of them, all the people of Ai, 
fell that day, verse 25 says. And only the livestock, verse 27, and the spoil of that city, Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. They devoted this place to complete destruction. And indeed, it is as these words say, it was made a heap of ruins. And people have excavated now those ruins and seen the destruction that took place in the 15th century BC. The people of Israel learned from their mistake at Jericho. And they completely devoted this place to destruction except for the things that God told them expressly they could take. So this was a complete victory. And then we learn what also happened to the king of Ai. Verse 23 says, But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. Verse 28 says, so, sorry, verse 29 says, And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones which stands there to this day. Joshua chapter 10, verse 26 to 27 says, Joshua did the same to five other kings. This was a particular punishment given to the leaders of these nations and cities to publicly placard them before the people and show the judgment of God upon them. This kind of hanging is even common throughout history. Up into the 1800s, our own country would have done public executions. These were public symbols and warnings of what happens to people when they commit serious crimes. How much more when you come under the judgment of Almighty God and break his own commandments. And yet we see there was a regulation with regard to the hanging. This gruesome ritual. The body would not remain all night on the tree. Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23 gave them this law. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. There was something defiling about having this cursed person in such a gruesome display kept up for longer than a day. And so I think Calvin is right here when he says God directed them this way to take the, the person down in the evening so that the people might not be accustomed to barbarity. You look at other nations in the ancient Near East, they would do similar things, but really keep the bodies of their enemies or their heads displayed for long amounts of time. God was not so barbaric. Rather, he wanted a sign of his judgment and his curse before the people, but he also 
wanted to preserve their cleanliness. This must be a reminder to us as well that the curse of God is upon those who break God's law. And coming under God's judgment and God's curse is a fearful thing. Deuteronomy 27, 26 says, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. This should remind us that there is judgment and wrath against sin. God is a holy God, even as we saw last week, as he destroyed Achan for his sins. And in a similar way, they stoned him and they heaped up a great heap of stones as a memorial to the judgment of God. We must remember that God does not play, play around with sin, but rather those who fall under the judgment of God for breaking his law, the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever as a memorial to the curse of God. Revelation 14, 11 shows us that. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24, likewise gives us a, a fearful picture of the judgment to fall upon those who reject God and how forever they will be this humiliating display. It says, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. This should show us just how heinous our sins are, how severe they are in the face of a most pure and holy and loving and good and just God, that they deserve such public displays of his judgment. But friends, this also must point us to another king who was hanged on a tree. Here we see a king of Canaanites cursed by God, but later on we know the very king of the Jews was cursed by God in the same way, hanged upon a tree, and he was the perfect king, king of kings, lord of lords, the righteous and holy one, never had he broken any of God's laws, rather he fulfilled all righteousness, but yet he was cursed. He fell under the judgment of God. He was displayed publicly there for all to see in shame, coming under the wrath of Almighty God in darkness as the earth quaked. He gave up his spirit upon the cross and why? Because, not because of his own sins, not because of his own breaking of God's law, but rather for ours. See, as we see this display here of the public judgment of God, we need to understand that God has made a way for us to be judged in another, Jesus Christ, our Lord since he himself was cursed on our behalf. It was for our sins. It was for our transgressions that he was numbered among the transgressors. Galatians 3, 
10 to 14 explains this. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. You see what Paul is saying there? By our own works, we could never justify ourselves. We can never come free from the judgment of God because we have all sinned. We have all fallen under his judgment and curse. We all deserve that judgment that the king of Ai received that day. And yet he goes on, he says, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's what Jesus was doing there. The king of the Jews. And they called out for his crucifixion. And in the sovereign grace of God, this was the accomplishment of our salvation. So that we could be freed and forgiven of our sins. And stand before God as innocent and righteous washed of our sins, clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. John 19, 30 to 37 says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate, that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. That was our Lord Jesus dying for us, hanged on a tree, cursed by God in our place, that we might receive the blessing of God, his forgiveness, his presence with us, eternal life forever. Friend, if you are not under the grace of God today, you need to know that the only safe place to take refuge from the wrath to come and from the wrath you will receive after death is under the cross of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is publicly placarded in front of you today as a sign of God's judgment, yes, but also of his grace and his love and his salvation for all who trust in Jesus Christ. You're to come to him and believe and confess your sins and forsake them. And trust in Jesus alone and not your own works to completely forgive you and give you eternal life in his name. And fellow believers, we ought to be reminded here of the great and gruesome death that Jesus went through for us. His willingness to die for us in such a way, publicly cursed of God, the Holy One, the only begotten Son of God, yet forsaken by God upon the cross. What a great love, what a great cost that we are forgiven at the cross. And we then are to go in love for this Christ, thankfulness for our Lord. And may this motivate all our obedience, all of our diligence, all of our perseverance in our mission to put sin to death, and to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ because 
Jesus has done this great work for us. That Jesus has died for us in such a way. This ought to make us diligent and mighty and valiant servants of Jesus Christ because he already went valiantly, courageously to the cross on our behalf. And friends, may it also remind you that the Christian's battle cry is love. Love to sinners. Reaching out to those who are in darkness. It is not a harsh and aggressive mission we're sent out on, but rather one of self-sacrificial love. Sharing the good news of God's love for sinners. Christian's battle cry is love, and their banner is the cross of Jesus Christ. So may we lift it high for the sake of Jesus Christ and his glory in all nations. Let's pray. Father God, we know that we're weak, Lord. And so we ask that you would provide us with all grace. Lord, to be diligent servants. Lord, that we would not be slack with the talents that you've given us. God, but we would improve them. We would advance the gospel. We would be serious about cutting off sin in our own lives. Striving to enter in. Enter the straight gate, the narrow gate. Entering into that rest that you've provided for us. That you've promised. And so you've already given. But God, give us the grace to trust and obey. And to enter in. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.